0: You are not required to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, I am Andrea. I am a recovering shitshow, which means that I am still a shitshow from time to time. I would have it no other way. So I was trying to think if I had any good dating stories to, to kick this off for y'all. I have one. Don't get your hopes up. It's, it's not that great. But I guess it was a few days ago, I was texting with a guy that I matched with on an app. And over the course of like 10 to 15 texts exchanged back and forth, um, he used the he used the word cozy twice. And uh I wasn't quite sure how I felt about that. And I was texting with Tiffany, who I had on the pod, about this. And, you know, I told her, I feel like the only time the word cozy is appropriate is if you are describing how your pet looks (laughs) while they're sleeping. And she said, and also blankets, like you can use the word cozy to describe blankets. But he had used it in the context of um, he had just gotten out of a movie and that he was going home to get cozy. And then a few texts later, he described living in San Francisco as it feels cozy for him. It's a nice and cozy location. I'm not down with the cozy. Judge away. I'm Maybe I'm just being a bitch, but I'm not down with the cozy. I don't know. I was not feeling it. Thankfully, I did not have to like come up with some excuse as to why. I didn't want to um, meet him. He the next morning he shot me a text and told me that he was a polyamorist and wanted to know if that I was okay with that. And I said, "No, sir." Uh, but we really all know that. Yes, I'm. I'm not okay with that. But I'm even more not okay <laughs> with using the word cozy. Take notes, gentlemen. Uh, today we are diving deep into the glorious subject. Of codependency. And I am joined by Sarah Michaud. And she is the author of a rad book that just came out. It is called Co Crazy One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and roadmap to freedom. Y'all, this book is really, really good. She does a really excellent job of sharing her story. And then breaking down the concepts of of codependency and addiction in a very palatable way. So go check this shit out. I had posed some questions on on Patreon. On Patreon, I always ask the listeners, do they have anything that they want me to um, ask the the guests I'm interviewing? And uh, Scott posted, hi, Scott. Scott posted a question uh, after I had done the interview, but it was essentially like, what the hell does codependency actually mean? Uh, and that's a very valid question. Uh, I think it's a word that gets thrown out a lot. Kind of similar to narcissism, like narcissists. I feel like, you know, oh, I'm a codependent or oh, they're a narcissist. It kind of gets thrown around loosely. So what the hell is actual codependency? And I wouldn't say that there is a, um, a consensus. There are several definitions. So here is the definition that Melody Beatty has from Codependent No More. Oh, and before I read that, I I read this quote. I had never read it before. Um, It's a quote from Melody, and it says, I wanted to call it codependent not so much. The publisher said it would never sell and suggested codependent no more, which is obviously impossible on a practical level. Sometimes in recovery, we have to bow to the demands of accounting. I thought that was funny. Um, Okay, so this is what she says in Codependent More. She says a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. Once they have been affected, once it sets in, codependency takes a life of its own. It is similar to catching pneumonia or picking up a destructive habit. Once you've got it, you've got it. And if you want to get rid of it, you have to do something to make it go away. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. Your codependency becomes your problem. Solving your problems is your responsibility. Amen, Melody. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. But I really buy into the way that uh, Tion Dayton describes codependency, and she sees it more so not so much as a a set of behaviors, but more of, you know, trauma-related. So I want to read from you. uh, This is from her book, Emotional Sobriety, which is amazing. And so this is what she says. current research in neuropsychology is helping us to comprehend why codependency may grow out of homes where relationship trauma is present and why it is a developmental disorder with long-term implications. I think that understanding codependency as a trauma-related loss of self that happens slowly throughout our personality development is the most helpful way to conceive of it. Codependency, I feel, is fear-based and is a predictable set of qualities and behaviors that grow out of feeling anxious and therefore hyper- hypervigilant in our intimate relationships. It is also reflective of an incomplete process of individuation. So she, in a nutshell, it's codependency is just a a symptom of our underlying condition. You know, whether that you want to call that complex trauma or the disease of family dysfunction, but whatever you want to call it. Being in the grips of codependency really fucking sucks, especially when you are sober and in recovery, but in active um, codependency, it is some rough, tough stuff there. So, you guys are going to love this conversation with Sarah. Um, I am chatting with her. I think I'm going to set up some virtual workshops to do with her. Um, I'm going to be setting up some virtual workshops with several uh, guests that we've had on the pod. I'm in the talks now with Mr. Fixer Picker to do a workshop. I'd love it to be uh, attachment theory related. So, stay tuned for that. And also, Today, when you're listening to this, Wednesday, uh, April 6th, Tiffany, who was on the pod a few weeks ago, she is having the 400th episode of her podcast, and she asked me to be on it, and we're doing it on Instagram Live, and we're talking about how the hell you start a podcast. So please come check us out if if you're available then or if you are interested in starting a podcast. And then, of course, I want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon members. Again, Patreon is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. It's also your way of saying thanks, Andrea. So thank you, thank you, thank you to these fine humans. Bess Frangles, not sure what your real name is, Skylar, Elliot, Ava, Jenny, Kelly, Betsy, Chrissy, Maya, uh, C. Darling, Alexandria, Kayla, Jean, Chelsea, Alex, Kristen, Catherine, Laura Lee, Rebecca, Judy, Candice, Michael, Sasha, Suri, Michelle, another Michelle, Dorothy, and I'm going to butcher this, but it's either Wina or... Uh, Weena You guys are the shit And how about the rest of y'all Do what they did And go sign up for the damn Patreon At patreon.com slash adultchild You can also follow me on Instagram and TikTok At adultchildpod And you can also go give me a damn 5-star rating On Apple and Spotify Thank you much Do me wrong And do me right
1: right now Tell me lies But hold tight, save your goodbyes for the morning light, but don't let me be lonely tonight.
0: The truth of the matter, my dear shit, shows is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one click refills, insurance coverage, and 24 7 care team support with done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit getdonefirstcom slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is is slash podcast done turn ADHD into your strength okay everybody it is my pleasure to introduce a recovering shit show uh psychologist codependent recovering addict uh Sarah Misho hello (laughs) are you there hi she's the author of the new book Co crazy one psychologist recovery from codependency and addiction, so glad to have somebody that's that suffers from codependency and addiction because i've I've always just been so- cu- curious what that's like
1: <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> most of the listeners know what it's like I would think they don't either none of them <laughs> the reason. For codependency first, too, is a lot of people write books on addiction, and there are like these stories of them kind of getting sober, and then that's the end of the story. And I really believe people are codependent way before they get addicted, right? I mean, absolutely we grow up usually in some type of dysfunction leading to our codependency. So I think a lot of addictions are covering up the codependency or whatever you want to call it, the way we relate to people, the way we relate to others and really relate to ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I see codependency. It's, it's like, I can't tolerate whatever's happening within me and I can't tolerate what is whatever's happening within someone else. Absolutely. And, you know,
0: so. I mean, I guess I see it kind of as. It's kind of the same thing, but it's like the disease of family dysfunction. I think what I realized for me was like, I always knew that alcohol was a symptom, but I don't think that I realized that my alcoholism was a symptom.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, they say mental, physical, spiritual, but to me, the most powerful part is the mental illness because I mean, it's an illness that people die from because their minds tell them they don't have it. I mean, denial being the quintessential component, right? And the thing is, you can get sober. And I remember my first sponsor saying, yeah, we can get sober, but we can still rationalize, minimize, romanticize, deny pretty much everything else. So the mental illness is still alive and well, even though we put down the drugs and alcohol. So
0: um, I think for me, it was like putting getting sober allowed for that shit to just manifest and grow and fester, you know?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially if you're going to try to get into relationships, which of course, you know, I was having sex and treatment. So I mean, oh, <laughs> like most well, us, yeah. right in the laundry room, I mean, um, so <laughs> relationships were my go to, I mean, you know, I put down booze and I picked up boys pretty quickly and kept crashing and burning and didn't even realize that that was part of my Inability to be with myself. And that, like, you talk a lot about the trauma and the abandonment and all the reasons why I was doing that behavior, but really because I couldn't be with myself. Yeah.
0: And I think it's even more painful. Like, I think that the, uh, yeah, like the, being an active, active codependency, like as a sober person, that is like way more fucking painful than being an active alcoholism or addiction, in my opinion. Right right. The most miserable thing in the whole world.
1: Well, it's those, you know, like they talk about in the big book, those underlying causes and conditions, right. It's the fear. It's the anger. It's the shame. It's the, you know, the anxiety, the panic, the, all of it feeling less than. And, you know, like I said, when I was, uh, in the book, I talk about going to treatment when I was 10 years sober and I was in a graduate program in San Diego and I just was bottoming out with relationships. And I'll never forget, you know, on the board where it said, you know, addicts, 95% problems, 5% addiction and co-addicts, hundred percent problems. So this delusion that the addict is the one that's fucked up and the co-addict, you know, is kind of fine is just so bizarre to me. They're more fucked up. <laughs> uh, yes. Both equally fucked up. And and one of the reasons I really wrote the book is because of my own countertransference. You know, when people are therapists, when our own issues come up, it's called Mm countertransference. And very often the codependents were way more frustrating for me than the addicts. The addicts, at least, you know, if they were in denial, like a joke with them, they could acknowledge it. They may not be ready or they were just really ready to get clean and sober. But the co-addicts, if a couple came in, very often they wanted to just say, if he or she gets sober, we'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I would try to say, well, it really, both of you have issues. They're just different issues. But the partner's denial and lack of willingness to look at that they were part of the problem was shocking to me. So um, yeah. I'm rambling, but go ahead. No, no, ramble away. Yeah, um, yeah that's so
0: interesting. Because I've noticed that that was definitely very present um, in my parents' relationship. Got it. And I think that, and I'm curious, I mean, there's so many different things going on, but um, obviously part of it is like the person, the the codependent not wanting to have to look their own shit. But I also think too, that there's a part of it where the codependent, not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, wants the person to stay sick. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think the codependent is, uh, terrified, Mm -hmm. you know, the addicts terrified of getting sober and the codependent person is terrified of what's going to happen if they get sober or what's going to happen if this isn't the focus. I mean, my dad was the codependent. My mom was the alcoholic and he always wanted to present maybe like your parents says he was the good guy. Um, You know, if mom would just get sober and she went to a bunch of treatments, Betty Ford and all these things, but she would come home and then, oh, mom can have a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, no, she can't she can't Mm -hmm. and their their denial is is so amazing that's another reason i wrote the book because and i say it in the book we want to be the good guys you know the codependents always want to be the ones that are nice and i've taken care of them and i've self-sacrificed when really no you're in it because you're just as afraid and angry and shameful and, but there's this, they're the good guys and we're the bad guys kind of presentation. And I wanted to break that up, <laughs> that they're getting something out of it. Like you said, exactly. There's a payoff for sure. Yes. Right.
0: And probably part of it is in what it talks about, like in the big red book and stuff is just the, um, Yes. Like the addiction to excitement and just like the,
1: yeah. Yes. Or being a victim.
0: Yes. Being a victim. Yeah. 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 I think that that's, what's so crazy about all this is like, at least when you're like an addict or an alcoholic, there is some sort of like a euphoria, but like on the other end of it, I mean, it's like really just like, Oh, I'm just like, you're just like seeking out shitty feelings. Like that's fucking nuts.
1: <laughs> well, also, it's the control that a- attachment and addiction to control and thinking they're managing their lives when really they're falling apart but this idea that I can control this other person or live in the delusion that I can control the other person that's how they feel safe or whatever don't feel their their own feelings I'll just focus on you yeah yeah control is a huge part huge and of course underneath it being just crippled by fear I mean, I just think, and I know I simplify things a lot, but fear for me is so much at the bottom line of everything. You know, we're only born with two fears, right? The fear of, I think, loud noises and falling. Really. And yeah. And so when I do four steps with people, I mean, people have up to 300 fears. And those are the things, if you think about it, it's not just the fear, it's all of that adaptations and behaviors that we've accumulated over the years to deal with the fear, whether it's a fear of abandonment or a fear of not being liked or not being loved or rejection or whatever, control, fear of being controlled, you know, fear of not being good enough. And those all started somewhere, at least in my belief system. I agree. I don't believe they just randomly occur. No, right? of
0: course not. They're, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting the fear of falling. That's weird. Like that yeah. you that a baby would have
1: right almost like a real um genetic is not the right word I'm looking for but primal. Yeah, yeah. the fear, fear of falling in love. No, like safety. It's like a mm-hmm. safety thing. I would think. Yeah. Huh.
0: Um what about with um and then we can talk about your story. But with with your experience of working with couples how often are you seeing that when um the one partner gets sober does the deal and then the other partner doesn't do anything and then uh, even if they do actually even if the other even if the if the codependent does seek recovery it's like we both change and then we realize that we're like actually not a good fit
1: right i mean i hate to say it, and I don't know statistically, but I think it's pretty common for someone, a couple to come in and the guy or woman's been drinking for 25 years and they don't, they don't know each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, pretty much the one person has been coping with a substance and the other person has just been enraged. (laughs) So, I mean, that happens a lot. A theme I see a lot is when Someone gets sober and they're going to their meetings and they're getting, doing therapy. And the other person might go to an Al-Anon meeting once or read a book, but they're very, they're still preoccupied and crippled by their rage. Mm. And I hear that a lot. So the, the couple will come in and they'll say, you know, they'll say, well, you got sober, but now you're out all the time or whatever. And it's hard for them to see that the anger has been there forever, that their anger isn't just about their husband, that they were probably angry way before they even met their husband and their husband or wife is a good reason to be angry. But I always say that the only way people can really work through stuff is if both people and, you know, this own their part and say, I am responsible for my part Mm. because, very often you're exactly right. Someone will get sober and it does not mean the marriage magically or the relationship magically gets better. Absolutely not. In fact, it will most likely get worse for a while.
0: Yeah. That's what I said in my, in my last episode. And I've been having conversations with friends about it. It's not just romantically, but just in relationships in general, I don't have room in my life for people who are not going to be able to like own their shit, you know? Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. And I always use the word, like if someone's willing, that's really the word, because again, someone may not even be aware exactly. that they have certain dynamics in a relationship, but if you're willing to listen and say, oh, geez, I didn't know that and not get all defensive or attached to it. I mean, we all have stuff. I always say relationships are like the petri dish <laughs> dysfunction because, you know, when we get into a relationship, those first three months are usually when. All of our oldest, deepest fears get activated. It's just the nature of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't have a language to talk about that stuff, I mean, think about the highs and lows you experience in those first three months. It's like you're psychotic. I mean, a famous psychologist, Irving Yalom, used to say falling in love is like, it's like delusional because You don't even know this person. And then within a week, you're ready to marry them. I mean, very often. And it's just this whole delusional activation. You mean like two days, you mean?
0: (laughs) (laughs) After the first phone conversation? (laughs) Right, Right. you've got the wedding plan. Yeah, yeah. right.
1: Practicing the last (laughs) person. Right. It's hard to get into reality and to see the facts when all those old feelings get activated and that feeling of love is very seductive or attraction just attraction i mean which uh, obviously has nothing to do with really the person that's right for us but Absolutely. it sure can get us going <laughs> you that. know this right yeah. yeah
0: yeah but i mean i can't even get them to go to the three-month mark so
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> well is that good or bad i, I mean, think it's because good. maybe think it's not the right person or
0: That's, yeah, I just implode, no, just I'm imploding that shit real fast. Uh, (laughs) I'm on the speed track, (laughs) Um, so, yeah, I'm on the speed track,
1: Um,
0: so, uh, so the the second, I guess it's the second part two of the book is your, is your journey. It's my little
1: journey, yeah, Yeah, my bottoms.
0: Let's break this down into childhood active addiction, and then codependency addiction. So tell me about your dysfunctional family.
1: Okay. All right. Um, I had four brothers. I was the only girl I was right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And as far back as I can remember there was just always chaos, fighting and drama. Now, whether those are the facts, I don't know, but you know, I remember being two or three you know, huddling next to my door while my parents are screaming and fighting. You know, the typical MO would be my mother would start drinking in the afternoon. My dad would come home from work. They'd start fighting at dinner and then that would be it. We'd all go into our rooms or do homework. But when I would go to when we'd go to sleep, usually is when my mother would go upstairs and the fighting and screaming would begin. So there was just a lot of chaos. A lot of. Um, you know, there were several mornings when I came downstairs and my mother would have a black eye or have bruises on her arm. I think mainly it probably was from falling. They would get into physical altercations, but it wasn't like my father was beating my mother at all, Mm -hmm. but it was more just the screaming and the yelling, but sure.
0: And was the next morning as if nothing had ever happened?
1: Yeah, all those ACOA, like not knowing what normal is. You know, I remember coming up from school one day in high school and my mother was on the living room floor and I thought she was dead and she was just drunk, obviously. But as a kid, you don't know that. And I, you know, so just bizarre, you know, not knowing what normal is thinking this is how people relate. I mean, I remember going to friends' houses for lunch and thinking, what kind of fantasy land is this? Like, you know, people aren't screaming and there's no tension, like that chronic tension. I don't know if you felt that. Like, mm-hmm. when people don't get along, you know, we joked about it that my parents had a fight that lasted 42 years. I mean, the kids are in this kind of heightened state all the time, waiting for something to happen, even when something's not happening. Your system is just in a chronic state of activation. So yeah. Yes.
0: Was, was your mother's alcoholism was that ever discussed? Like at, at what age do you think that you became aware that she had a drinking problem?
1: Oh, so young. I mean five. Oh wow. I mean, literally elementary school. I mean. Yeah, I think kids know way younger than, than some of my clients like to believe. Like, I think pa- being an alcoholic parent is so freaking painful once you get sober. And I think it's hard for for parents to realize that their kids know way younger than they think. that. Because a lot of times someone will come in and say, oh, my kids weren't affected. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, they were. They were even if you hit it, they were. You're not emotionally present. Um, and not that it's not extremely painful to be a parent and get sober and deal with that, but I knew pretty young, and all my brothers knew pretty young.
0: Right, yeah. Sorry, I don't I can't remember if you said this already, but where did you fall in the line
1: of the chip? Right in the middle. I had two older and two younger, and it's bizarre. I'm sure you've had other people say this. It was like two separate families. My two older brothers even though we're only like two years apart, they were very close. And then myself and my two younger brothers were very close. So it was like these two separate units. And And what role did you play? um, I was the kind of peacekeeper, you know, in the, all the ACOA books, I'm the lost child, the third child. But I think we all had many of the different roles we were all comedians. I mean, humor was a huge coping skill. Uh, My brother started smoking pot probably in eighth grade. So our house became this, like we had this, you know, attic where all my brother's friends would hang out. And I mean, the house just reeked of pot all the time. Of course, my parents really never, never addressed it, even though I'm sure they smelled it. Um, So there was all these bizarre things happening that no one was really talking about. I mean, as we got older, I remember begging my father to divorce my mother. Mm -hmm. And he literally said to me, how do I know it's going to be better without her? And I was just like, how could it possibly get any worse? I mean, you guys fight all the time. And that kind of narcissism of the alcoholic and the codependent too, where it's all about them. Rather than thinking, oh, it's awful for the kids to grow up this way. I mean, that's the thing, too, that's so infuriating. You know, my father infuriated me a lot more than my mother did. My mother had an illness. I always thought he could have done something, you know, but he couldn't, obviously, because of his own dysfunction. I know.
0: Yeah. No, I can totally relate to that.
1: I think, yeah,
0: especially as us as alcoholics. You know, like, it's a lot easier for me to identify with my mother's illness. Right. Um, So did your, so were there conversations though, but either between you and your siblings or directly with your parents, like specifically about your mother's drinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, my brothers and I would talk about it all the time. Um, We, I'm sure we talked to our dad a couple of times about it. She did go to several treatment centers. She went to Betty Ford. She went to several places around here. How old old the
0: first time? How old were you when she went to treatment for the first time?
1: Probably teens. Okay. Um, But of course, you know, Betty Ford at that time, whatever year this was, had this program for, that was a month and then a program that was three months for the real heavy hitters. And of course, my mother. (laughs) You know, they recommended to stay for three months. And she's like, no, I've got this and didn't stay. Um, and tragically, I mean, it's really sad. She never got sober and she died at 67, you know, pretty much from smoking the sun and eating steaks for breakfast back then. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> my parents generation didn't have the best lifestyles, Marlboro's martinis. And steak for breakfast and laying in the sun. So yeah.
0: (laughs) What, What do you know about your parents' upbringings?
1: Um, my mom's mom was an alcoholic, and her both one of her brothers was an alcoholic. I'm not sure about the other. So it definitely went back in, you know, the grandparents. My dad's parents, uh, his father was deceased when I was born. So I don't really know about his parents that that much and their history. Um, you know, my dad was a WW2 vet, and I think wow. he was undiagnosed with PTSD. PTSD. I mean he was an attorney, but he was a rage machine. You know, they didn't even know what it was back then. So um I think that was a lot of his stuff, let alone the just the co crazy that developed by being with my mom, you know, so. Where was he yeah. deployed to? He was, he literally, he literally liberated concentration camps. You know, oh, he was, yes. yeah, he, he sought everything. And again, back then because of the GI Bill, he ended up going to Harvard Law School and he became this successful lawyer but i think that's well that's how he coped right just workaholism and emotionally just totally detached so you know he would come home my mother would cook him dinner like the 60s and he would go up to his room and that was it we didn't really see much of him um and then he'd try to connect on weekends so that was
0: yeah, did he ever yeah. share
1: about his experiences in the war? I mean, I got much closer to him as I got older and got sober. Um, yes, we got pretty darn close, and he he's written some and left us these these little journals about his experience in World War II. But I don't know much about his childhood. I really don't. I mean, sometimes, and this is gonna sound crazy, I think he was gay. Mm -hmm. and i think he lived a life of quiet desperation for a variety of reasons i just i just believe that and i think because of his age and his generation he never could explore that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so fascinating (laughs) i know people store i mean so many secrets in the family right yeah
0: Yeah. You should listen to my, if you haven't listened to it, I have an episode. I think it's in the first 15 or so, but his, his name is Alan Kaufman and his mother was a Holocaust survivor. Um, That's fascinating. Um, Absolutely. So growing up, like, were you aware at what point were you aware that, um, like when your mother was going into treatment and stuff, was it ever made clear to you that this is a genetic disease and that there is an there was a chance that
1: you were going to be an alcoholic? Yeah, I'm not sure if I ever learned that. All I know is the first time I picked up booze, I fell in love with it and that was it. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't socially drink that much. It was once I drank, that was it. I mean, it was a love affair. It was a total love affair. And... I really believe if the, dr- the drugs didn't come into the picture, I could have drank for 20 more years. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but because I started doing cocaine and because I started getting into the legal problems and getting arrested and trying to pull check scams and getting into trouble and all that, I think that cocaine brought me to my knees. But um, yeah, the booze was a total love affair. I mean, yeah. What's really funny is when my mother drove me to treatment and I remember this intake and the guy said, so you have a problem with drugs? And I said, yep, definitely. I have a problem with cocaine and, you know, I smoke a ton of pot and blah, blah, blah. And then he said, and do you think you're an alcoholic? And I said, absolutely. And my mother goes, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because
0: because she's not. (laughs)
1: And it was so hilarious. It's like, mom, I've been drinking like a case of beer a day, you know, especially when you're coked up. Um, And I said, of course I'm an alcoholic. But it was like so interesting because for her, it was okay that I had a cocaine problem. But for her to acknowledge that I had an alcohol problem would mean she'd have to look at herself. And she just wasn't able to do that at that time. So. Absolutely. Cause she didn't have a Coke. Yeah. Problem.
0: <laughs> she didn't have a right. drinking problem. So, t- so, tell- so tell me a yeah. little bit about the progression of your, your disease.
1: Yeah. I mean, at a party, you know, like I talk about in the book, my first addiction was food. I had a weight issue when I was really young and, you know, I'm totally addicted to sugar. And then I picked up booze in like ninth or 10th grade. And I remember the thought, that this is the solution to all my problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just was. I remember going to this party and I was overweight and I was not in the cool crowd and I didn't have a boyfriend. I remember making people laugh and thinking, oh my God, people actually like me and I can fit in and all the stuff you typically hear at an AA meeting. Um, So (laughs) yeah, that definitely was the solution.
0: Yeah, you picked up a drink, you were 50 pounds uh, lighter, you were (laughs) cool girl and you were dating Brad Pitt.
1: (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, the progression, like I said, was quick and I bottomed out. I mean, I only drank and drugged for like eight or nine years and I got sober at 24, 25. So um, I crashed and burned. I had been up for like three days. I was At this Coke dealer's house, and I it was the middle of the night, and I woke up on the floor and I felt like bugs were crawling all over me, and I was hallucinating. And I just, you know, kind of crawled out of this apartment and went to a phone booth back then and called my brother who kind of came and rescued me. And then I got into the hospital within a couple of days. So, yeah, that was it. And then,
0: Uh, so you're a one trick pony.
1: I'm a one trick pony. And, you know, it's interesting because even though it's been a long time, I still can bring up very easily the sensation of incomprehensible demoralization. I mean, a lot of my acting out was sexually. And, you know, as my sponsor said once, her sex list was longer than a resentment list. So that was a source of my. Um, shame, my worst bottoms, my, I mean, really that was a lot of the work I had to do in those early years. I don't know if you ever read the book, women's sex and addiction by Charlotte Castle. It's all about sexual addiction sexual codependency. And that was like my Bible for the first five to 10 years of sobriety. And, um, another book by her many roads, one journey, kind of the feminist aspects of recovery. So that and really, when you look at it, it's really the untreated codependency, the untreated trauma, all of that, the untreated ACOA stuff, all manifesting in acting out behavior, right? Which uh, was my go to for quite a while. So let's hear about having sex and treatment. (laughs) Who was this
0: fine, fine specimen? This fine
1: gentleman, Billy. Um, God, you know, I mean, you're in treatment. You don't. You're out of your mind. I mean, I don't. I was out of my mind. You're out of your
0: mind for like the first
1: ten years. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I was out of my mind. I I can still be out of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my apartment. I had an apartment at the time that was only like five miles away. So, um, Billy and I hooked up and. Yeah, we'd go on our Saturday three-hour three Pass. passes to my apartment, but it started in the laundry room. I do remember that. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Did you stay in contact with Billy when you left? No, I didn't say and talk about. It. I, you know what? It's really shocking, and I'm sure others have had this experience. Not many people were still sober a year later.
0: Yeah, I think I was the yeah. only
1: one. Right. Mm hmm.
0: So did you as soon as you left treatment, did you dive into the program like head in?
1: I really did. I mean, I really did. I dove in and um, just went to meetings all the time. All my pals were in meetings. I went back to college eventually, but I was still really active. And I also after a couple of years, uh, you know, like, like you are a seeker. I mean, I Wanted to do everything. I was doing this course, I was doing this, you know, ropes course, I was doing this new age weekend seminar. I was, I just was so looking for the answers. And um, so I was majoring in psychology and sociology. So I was seeking all the time and meetings, you know, meetings were more of a social thing back then, I think, or in those early years, it was more like, you know, let me go to the Friday night NA meeting so I can hook up for the weekend. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you stories. Oh my God. I remember being in an NA meeting. This is like when I'm nine months sober. And and, and there was four people in there that you had slept with. Is that what you're going to do? not this meeting but it was a woman's meeting okay it was a woman's meeting and all of a sudden in the middle of this meeting this woman says I just want you to know that someone in here slept with my boyfriend and I'm like what I mean I think what bitch would have done that right and then the more me and this guy Mike had literally come up to me after I got my 90 day chip and said I've been waiting for you (laughs) Ah! (laughs) oh what a stud I, I mean it's so awful to think about this stuff but it is addicts in early recovery in their 20s I mean that's what we were doing right so yeah and and so anyways this woman we went outside i talked it out i said listen i didn't know he had a girlfriend i mean my god maybe you should be talking to him not me is the point anyways
0: so so yeah was there any resolution
1: there (laughs) Uh, i don't know what happened to their relationship but yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) i mean
0: oh na back in the day yeah Um, so when, obviously you didn't follow the one year rule, neither did I No. were you being honest with your sponsor about any of that stuff or were you keeping it to yourself?
1: Um, good question. I mean, I was someone that probably called my sponsor every six months. (laughs) I okay. wasn't someone who had a sponsor that I was like actively calling every day. Okay. So, I was pretty much self-will run riot. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. were you making girlfriends? Um, yeah. I had it's interesting because I had a couple of girlfriends, but my best friend literally until the time I went to graduate school was a guy. Uh-huh. The same with Kevin. Uh-huh. And he was my best friend for those first say seven years Uh and then I moved to California and I definitely had girlfriends, but was definitely way more comfortable around guys. As you hear a lot of women say early on in recovery. Um, Now I have all women friends mainly. Um, But yeah, those early years, I think because I grew up with boys and I always felt like a tomboy and probably because of my mother being an alcoholic, I don't know what your experience was didn't trust women a lot and it was harder to get to know women early on. Absolutely. So then
0: tell me about the progression of your broken picker and sobriety that led you to your
1: bottom. Yeah. So just lots of crazy relationship experiences. Um, You know, I talk about in the book that about that experience when I went to the club med Mm-hmm. and came home, and I was on a date, and then the guy from the club met is on my porch. I mean, I just, <laughs> I couldn't say no, first of all. Very hard to say no. I was still being driven by the fear of not being wanted. I mean, that, when I've done my fourth steps in, you know, since then, that was really my baseline fear. The fear of not being loved, the fear of not being wanted, that basically got me into every relationship, because it wasn't about whether they were appropriate or not. It was, first of all, it was just attraction-based. And then usually you realize three months later, oh my God, they're not the right person for me. What am I doing here? So a lot of that, a lot of that initial attraction, sex too soon, they're not the right person, breakup, a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to graduate school and got into consistent therapy and um, went to that treatment center for the codependency. I ended up having longer relationships. I dated a guy for a couple of years when I was in graduate school and it was just got to the point where he decided I wasn't the one and that relationship ended. And then I met Sean when I was my first husband in San Diego, but the relationships got longer and Still was hard, I think, up until, God, you know, the last 10 years, maybe, or 20 years. I was going to say, I, I would have to think about, I do believe, that. I know your listeners are probably going to cringe at this. If you can wait <laughs> to have sex, you can really end a lot of relationships sooner and not get yourself all emotionally twisted up. And um, it makes life so much easier because once you start having sex, it's that pseudo intimacy, like in that you actually feel like you're close, but you're really not. And um, Mm -hmm. then you wake up six months later and you don't even like the person. So so anyway, so relationships definitely got better. And, um, I think, like I say in the book, you know, Sean, I was my late thirties when I met him. So I was really thinking at that time, oh my gosh, am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to have a child? And I really wanted to fit him into my, fit a square into a round hole. Um, not that we didn't have, you know, he on one hand, and this is the tricky thing. Like nothing is... Black or white, right? It's always both end. On one hand, Sean is an awesome human being. I mean, he was a really spiritual guy. He was sober. He was a writer. He was really into personal growth. He had sold this advertising company and had been traveling around the state of California and very interesting, a tad narcissistic, You know, very seductive. Uh, I could listen to him forever and gratify his ego, I'm sure. Um, so I think that kind of, there was a lot of drama in that relationship, like we'd break up and get back together. And then I really think fear is probably, I mean, we did one of those Catholic, even though I'm not Catholic, but one of those church weekend things where, you know, you address all these aspects of the possible marriage, the pre-marriage thing. And literally at the end, the priest said, you really should you shouldn't get married. I mean Wow. <laughs>
0: we just
1: weren't we didn't, we weren't didn't have enough in common. And of course we got married anyways and had a great wedding, but I always say I had the quickest marriage in history, but I did have Bo, um, who's my son, and so it all worked out and God's got a plan and all that, and he's still in my life. So But that was definitely a crash and burn, a big crash and burn. Yeah, with the codependency. And so, yeah,
0: yeah, it sucks. Um, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, I just think you feel so much more, I felt so much more raw than I did when in early sobriety. You know? I also think too, like the amount of shame that's there too. You know it was just so much easier for me to um be like okay yeah no i was i was an alcoholic i like these chemicals of course i was behaving in that way i was not in my right mind right. Um, but the shame of being sober being
1: yes
0: in a 12-step program for years working the 12 steps doing and to, to still be behaving in that way yes. um, it's so shameful but that's why having the realization that that there was trauma yeah it was such a weight off my shoulders yes um yeah yes. yeah so um do you want to talk a little I b- think
1: we're doing- go ahead yeah I was just gonna say i always think we're doing exactly what we were trying to do do you know what i mean it's like i i never think there's any mistake or like it's this intentional thing we have these childhoods we develop these belief systems, we develop these coping skills and it, and everything that happens is exactly the way that, that mind is going to operate. Do you know what I mean? It's not a mystery. So like you say, until you start, I mean, I remember when I read that red book for the first time, I was like, holy
0: fucking shit. shit. I know it's me. It's yeah, me.
1: like, Absolutely. And I had read, you know, Codependent No More and all the books from the 80s, Claudia Black and Janet Weitz and Melody Beattie and all these people, you know, Jonathan Bradshaw, all these people that were doing that, you know, the inner child and the codependency and all that stuff. But that red book, I just remember like, wow, they are just nailing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's just what identifying it is. the symptoms and. the pain.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's powerlessness. It's like, a, it's another level of powerlessness. Like I couldn't expect, like, yes. I kept being like, okay, I'm going to do things differently next time. I didn't have a fucking choice to do things differently next time because I had was suffering from complex trauma. And just like when right. I ingest a drink, all bets are off. Right. Same thing goes when I right. enter a relationship and I haven't resolved any of my trauma. Uh, so that's why right. it was like, Huge one, just like the relief of, like, oh, I'm not inherently flawed, and two, oh, there's a solution for this as well.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely, and that's what really uh, I like to focus on too, because I do believe everybody, I mean, you know, obviously there's a continuum, but everybody's got some type of trauma, sometimes, especially if you're a woman in recovery. I mean, let's face it, um, so. Yeah, that we can identify the problems, but what are the solutions? What is going to be helpful? How do we change these behaviors? I mean, whatever they are, you know, when we look at those self-seeking behaviors, they're all just adaptations, you know, how we survived, how we felt safe, you know, whether it was avoidant behavior or acting out behavior or people pleasing or rationalization, or it doesn't matter what it is. It's realizing, like you're saying, gee, these things aren't working anymore. What's going to be helpful? So, yeah, absolutely. Identification absolutely is the first step, like you said. I remember when I first read that book back in the 80s, The Courage to Heal, which is about sexual abuse. I remember I had the same experience, like, oh, my God, somebody knows what it's like. And it's the same feeling with that red book like wow somebody really gets this.
0: yes so, it was like all the things that have been running in my head thinking that i was the only one and then seeing it on paper like it was life changing
1: absolutely absolutely yes 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 yeah so so you're saying
0: like how do we change i mean it's not one size fits all right so what did it no, absolutely like? not
1: what did it look like for you um well when my son when i was Pregnant with my son, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and so that's 21 years ago. And definitely, you know, the, the 12 steps, the CODA, the Al-Anon, the ACOA, all of those 12-step programs and all the workbooks and therapy, all of those have contributed to my recovery And I always say this, even when people in AA, it's like, there's this transition transition from the kind of pointing the finger and blaming. And, you know, first it's your parents then it's your whatever, your partner to, wow, I am responsible. I mean, you know, you know, you can go to a meeting and someone has 25 years of sobriety and they're still bitching about their wife or whatever. It's like, Until someone really owns and acknowledges, wow, I am the problem. I've got the stuff. I don't know how they can move forward and find peace and happiness because you're just going to be stuck in that resentment, you know, the irritable, restless and discontent, you know, which isn't just alcoholics. I mean, that's the human condition. I mean, it's always going to be better or different somewhere else being somewhere else, when something else happens, when this ha- you know, it's that delusion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. just
0: because it's we're it's us, I mean, we, we might not be, you know, we're obviously not responsible for what happened to us as kids. But guess what? We're the <laughs> we're the only ones that can do anything about addressing that. Yes. Like we can. Uh, I wish our parents could go to therapy for us, but it just right. doesn't
1: fucking work that way, right? right 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 yeah exactly it's still about we're not responsible for what happened but the thing is like we've been talking about all of those things have been internalized Mm -hmm. and now we're operating with all these coping behaviors all of these strange ways we think that are going to work but they really don't work and we keep hitting the wall over and over again it's like oh what you know what can I do differently? And I That's always a common do... denominator in this it's yes. me. <laughs> yes, yes. And so often, and I know this is a simplification, but I often say this to people in like the codependency groups it's, you know, like we said at the beginning, I have to tolerate what's happening inside of me. You know, I have to identify, experience, and express my feelings. I have to tolerate the terror, the fear, the abandonment experience, whatever is happening without necessarily doing anything. Right? And, you know, and when I say in the book, you know, I was, I am still a psychologist obviously, but in my practice, you know, I say this, if people could do two things, I wouldn't have a job. If they could speak up, speak up for themselves and set boundaries. Like literally those are the two things that were just so common with everybody. And I think, and those two things have to do with being able to tolerate our feelings. I can't speak up and set a boundary unless I can tolerate what's happening inside of me. And I can tolerate what's happening inside of me when you get upset or disappointed or whatever, right?
0: hmm Yeah. Just something down that I wanted to I want to ask you about in a little bit. Sure. Um, so um so other outside of 12 steps, what what type of work did you do for yourself personally um related to addressing the trauma that was of like particularly yes. effective for you?
1: Yes. I eventually got into I don't know if you've read any of the Peter Levine stuff or Bessel van der Kolk or the body mm-hmm. stuff. Yep. So I did obviously talk therapy for a long time and programs and workshops and all of that stuff. But I really felt like I, uh, several years ago I did a somatic experiencing it's called training, which is um, the type of therapy that Peter Levine does and the body therapies. And I really felt as though that was kind of the next level of getting into my body. When, when was it? When did you do this? This was maybe, yeah, this is this is the most recent. So this is uh, between five and 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Obviously I'd read his books and done that, but as far as really experiencing it and, and, and getting into this type of therapy um, was more recent. And mm-hmm. since, probably since, 2011 which is when my second divorce which i gotta keep saying those words it always like provides a provokes a mini shame attack okay um it could be fourth <laughs> and right? no, I guess I should
0: i'm sure there's some people listening they're like only second well fuck you lady
1: <laughs> you never know what lessons you're supposed to learn right exactly um But yeah, the trauma stuff. So I really thought the body stuff brought it to a new level of, you know, they talk about it being top down, meaning there's just something missing when you're just doing the talk therapy. There's something else when you become a meditator or yoga or whatever it is that works for you, where you can tolerate being present in your own body. And that for me was a big part of it. And they do this certain method where I found you can get in touch with stuff very quickly. I mean, we would get to an incident from God knows when, like within a couple of sessions and have this, and it's all about kind of reprogramming your nervous system. The theory is that you didn't complete these cycles of your activation Yep. And it's all about kind of completing those cycles. So your system can be calmer. And um, so again, it's not really any one thing, but definitely that was, I thought, really helpful for trauma. It is trauma therapy. Were you so, working with somebody one-on-one
0: for this or, or was it yes. a thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And is it people that have been trained underneath Peter Levine or what is it?
1: Yes, it's, there's a website and my brother, who's a therapist also, he and I went and did the first training and it's just fascinating. And it's called somatic experiencing is the type of therapy S E. Yeah. And I'm sure there's tons of other body therapies, but, and they're few and far between. There's a big website though, that'll show practitioners and uh, you can look up and find one if you want. Yeah. I want him on the podcast. Oh, well, he's he's I have some of his CDs, and he's gotten obviously. I mean, he's probably like 80 now. I'm not sure I how really? old he is now. Okay, okay, he's, he's definitely up there. But Bessel van der Kolk is another person who's written recently on trauma in the body, and uh, Amazing too. yeah, I mean, it's really the wave of the last, I would say, 20 years, finally focusing, you yeah. know. Saying that it's not just a mental thing that it's also our bodies, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Especially that. Yeah. The, the complex trauma piece. Right. Mm. Right. So, okay. So let's get into some questions. Um, I'm going to pull up for my Patreon, but, um, the one thing I wanted to ask you, so we were in my group last night in my Patreon group, we were, we were talking about this and, um, What a few of the girls, you you just made the comment about like, if we could speak up for ourselves and if we could set boundaries, then you wouldn't have a job. So what a few people brought up is they're like, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to discern what my needs are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know what? One of my mantras that I do with my groups and my clients for years are one Mm -hmm. of your mantras should be, what do I need? What do I want? What do I need? What do I want? Because you're absolutely right. It's very hard to express a need if you don't know what it is. So the first step, you're absolutely right, is what is the need? What is my need right now? Do I need validation? Do I need someone to listen? Do I need to feel loved? Uh, Do I need to be heard? Do I need to be understood? Do I need to feel safe? What is the need I'm having right now? You're absolutely right. And then you have to be in a safe enough relationship, obviously, to be able to express it. The problem is we're so crippled by our fears from the past that, again, it goes to how can I sit with the discomfort and still speak? You know, I'll give you a great example of someone on a group the other night. So she, in recovery like 15 years, just starting to do this code of work, had as a dad, her mom passed away, but she's very codependent with her dad. And her dad has been calling her like four or five times a day for years and says, I just wanted to see how you were, which really means I need you to make me feel okay. But, Absolutely. and so she said in the group, yeah. So she said, I finally realized and had to sit with the discomfort of my father being upset my father maybe pulling away from me because then that's a whole other thing you know what's going to happen if i set the boundary and she ended up having a conversation with him about you don't really need to call me this much mm-hmm. i love you and mm-hmm. if i if something's wrong i'll definitely let you know but <laughs> it really opened up but But the terror she was feeling around that conversation was probably of a five-year-old girl, you know, and her father would go out and get drunk that night. It probably had nothing to do with what she's trying to do today. But that's the thing. You know, it's always about a past fear, a past experience, a past time we were hurt, you know, under each resentment is a hurt. And so if you can connect that also, that's really helpful it helps us to calm down in the present moment sorry I know I'm off on a tangent but you're not yeah so noticing you know noticing your experience noticing your feelings identifying a fear and identifying what you need then there's the speaking up right then there's the expressing it now what's the fear there and I'm am I afraid they're going to get mad at me am I afraid they're going to be disappointed am I afraid they're going to abandon me that's a big one right And again, all those are usually from the past. So again, it's tolerating. Okay, what do I need to tolerate while I express this need? And then once you have more experiences where the person hasn't abandoned you, where they've actually listened to you, where you have these positive experiences, then you're building up your bank of, oh, I can't express a need and they won't get upset, you know.
0: Yeah. And I would think so too, like with the not knowing what our needs are, I think part of that too, is like, we have to do that inner work too. Right. And so that's part of it too, is like, as we heal our unresolved shit, it's going to be a lot easier for us to identify like what our actual needs are. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's It's like getting sober in a way. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, and when you're so focused on others and feeling safe, if the people around you are okay, I'm okay. You know, you may know what your partner's needs are way before you know what yours are. That's the time, right? Yeah, they don't yeah. have
0: to tell you. You fucking know. <laughs> you wake up right. with a to-do list, they don't even have to tell you. <laughs> Okay. You so, wish they could read your mind though, because it's so
1: hard to express. I've had plenty I know. of women be upset. Like, why doesn't he just know? It's like
0: because yeah. you because we know. can read their minds so easily. That's right. The <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, okay, so this uh Alexandria wants to know, she has, she's curious about um how codependency can appear in the workplace. And uh how to exit those relationships in a respectful manner. She says, especially if a person you're dependent on is toxic and has little respect for any personal boundary. So what are your thoughts
1: on codependency in the workplace? Yeah, I think it happens all the time. I mean, I have an example of a gal I'm sponsoring right now who is having a lot of codependence. She's the boss. And one of the people that works under her is constantly disruptive in meetings. And because of her own fears with her own history, with her own mom, she has such a hard time setting the limit because mm. of this fear, they're going to get upset or she's going to look bad or whatever it is. And finally, just last week with a lot of support and looking at what was the cause, you know, the other thing about codependency is that it's not helping the other person. Yeah, no kidding. That's it's the hurting other I know, but we believe we're doing them a favor by not speaking up. On the other hand, everybody else is suffering. Everybody else is pissed off that the guy's interrupting. And so when you address it, you're not only helping yourself, you're helping the other person. I mean, so again, I, I say this so much, but identifying the problem, noticing your feelings about the problem. I would also say, If you're having a certain anxiety or a certain activation of anger, what is it that's getting activated? Mm -hmm. You know, because people in the workplace um, are just going to activate our parents stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's your boss or whether it's your partner. Mm -hmm. If you're getting angry at someone, what's it activating? You don't feel good enough. You don't feel heard. You don't feel understood. So it's identifying that activation first so you can calm down before you communicate. That's another thing. So you're not just acting out and exploding at work.
0: Yeah. I think what you said there about the it not being helpful. I think what's interesting, too, about codependency is like at its core, it is essentially selfish, you know.
1: Well, because it's about our own fear. Yeah, we didn't have to think it's about other people, but yeah. you know, it's like someone said recently. You know, the term "people pleasing" is a delusion. He said, "People aren't pleased; you're not pleasing anyone." Yeah, and that was a great line. It's like, yeah, we believe we're these people pleasers, but most it's of the time, the nature. Just, yeah. Yes. Right. Right.
0: Okay. Let's see what we have next. Um. Okay. just from Chelsea. She said, I think in your last episode, you touched a bit on this, but I always thought I was empathetic and I could be slightly. However, I know for a fact that I am codependent. Does this happen a lot? Do people tend to think they're empathetic or being empathetic when in reality, they're just a codependent? Having both would be hard. And from what I've read, codependency and the difference between codependent and empathetic is codependent. There is a lack of the
1: authentic self Mm. on this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great distinction. Again, codependency is coming from fear. I don't think empathy is. Empathy is coming from a sincere empathy for someone else's issues or someone else's uh difficulty they're having in that day. The codependency to relate. Always, yes. It's always getting active. The codependency is activated usually by a fear, you know, not feeling in control if you're, you know, how you're gonna look. Um And so it's more of this fear-driven need rather than true connection.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: absolutely, it's hard to be authentic when you're being driven by what someone else thinks of you or how you're looking to someone else or trying not to upset someone. I mean, again, like you just said, if you don't even know what you need or want, how can you communicate authentically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, this kind of like goes to what we were just talking about. So, uh, Sophie said, "I struggle uh, distinguishing between codependency and people pleasing. I'd love to know the difference. I mean, I think that it's it's one and the
1: same. I mean, yeah. I mean, people pleasing, I would say, is one behavior trait of codependency. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So this is from Emily. She says,
0: I have, a tru- I have trouble distinguishing between codependency and my trauma responses and trigger. I go back between thinking I'm in a healthy relationship and thinking I'm codependent due to lack of self-esteem and difficulty identifying my feelings. I, sup- I suppose it does go all hand in hand. I'm probably just codependent. I mean, I think, and what Tian Dayton speaks about is that she, what she believes is that like at the root of codependency, it, it's trauma. It's not a set of behaviors. It is a a result of unresolved trauma.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think out of the unresolved trauma come the behaviors, right? Yeah. 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 And it depends the degree. It depends what the trauma is. It depends a lot of times what your interpretation of the trauma, two people can have the same experience, different interpretation. Exactly. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. My adult child rock bottom was realizing that my, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. Existence was running the show, my show, my life. I would get so deep into others' needs and give, give, give until resentment because I ultimately felt like used like a doormat erupted in my me drowning in anger. So my efforts thus far have been figuring out how to love myself, which has eluded me all my life. Then maybe I will know what boundaries I need. Is that when it happens? I guess we kind of spoke on that, right? It's about figuring out, resolving our shit, uh, working on ourselves in order to unearth
1: what we really do want and need. Right. I mean, that's kind of the cycle. She exactly just said the cycle, right? I'm going to be this person for you because I can't really be with myself. And the delusion is I'm going to be happy, but really all it leads to is more fear and resentment. The trouble is if you don't deal with the resentments and the anger, I mean, I swear, I sometimes think I could have written a book just on anger. I think anger is such a significant piece in the sense of, I don't think a lot of people know they're angry, exactly. but I think it comes out in a variety of ways. And I do think if you don't resolve your resentments from the past, you are going to keep they're going to keep manifesting in your future relationships. Um, so that would just another thing I'd say if she's angry, you know, that's still there. And that would be something definitely, especially with women, you know, we can deny it, try to be nice. But wow, I mean, we carry a lot of anger and aren't, aren't aware of it, I think, because of our how we behave sometimes, or we're just a bitch or whatever, yeah.
0: you know, we, t- no, we, yeah. we talked about that last night in my group as well. Um, so like throughout your, um, your career, like helping codependence, what are like some of the I don't know, what are some of the con- like the biggest roadblocks that you've seen or like the biggest resistances that tend to get in the way? Hmm.
1: I think people um, don't want their relationships to change, even if it's really horrible. you know, I think it's hard to re people resist change. So they may want a relationship to be different, but they want the other person to change very often. Like we've been saying, I think you have to hit a bottom where you're willing to give up, you know, where you say to yourself, no matter what happens in this relationship, I'm willing to let it go. If I, if I don't get my needs met, because a lot of times People are just afraid, like we're saying, afraid to be themselves, afraid to speak their truths, afraid to express what they need. You know, a lot of times I say people are afraid to express what they need, because what if the person says, I can't meet those needs? You know, it's much easier to live in a delusion that, oh, I just can't express it instead of actually asking for it. And the person's like, no, I'm not. I don't want to have a child or I don't want to get married or whatever the issue is, you know, it's a way we can control the narrative and control what's going to happen. So it takes a lot of responsibility to kind of acknowledge like, wow, like you're saying, I've got to focus on myself. I've got to figure out what I want and then I need to express it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like that moment where the fear and pain, of staying the same finally is is greater than the fear or pain of change. Yes, yes, and that yes. takes a lot of fucking pain. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, because we can rationalize. I mean, you know this. I mean, we've all been in relationships where we can rationalize anything, <laughs> anything. You know, and I think the 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 you know more troubled we are and the more detached we are from ourselves, the bigger things we can rationalize. Mm-hmm. The more fear we have about being alone or feeling our feelings, the more we can rationalize. Do you ever
0: come across many low bottom codependents? Do I come across them? Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, like, are there any ever people that are coming like in They're like, Hey, you know, like, um, I stubbed my toe and I think I might have this. So what do I need to do? And, and then they right. do it.
1: Does that ever happen? <laughs> I think codependency has, I think people can die from codependency. Oh shit! I mean, yeah, people can, I, I think a lot of physical illness. I, I don't know if you've read any Gabor Matei, but you know, his whole book, When the Body Says No. I mean, the whole book is about codependency and illness and its connection to it. I mean, when we don't speak up and when we have years of rage built up, I mean, we can get physically sick and it can manifest in all kinds of ways. Depression, you know, just that alone, panic attacks, physical problems, headaches, stomach aches. I mean, chronic unhappiness, workaholism, any addiction. I mean, it's all so connected. All the things. Absolutely. Yes. So
0: this book is amazing. What I think is really, and everyone needs to go check it out. Co crazy, uh, I'll leave it in the show notes. But what I think is good, and I think it's kind of similar to like my my podcast, is like I think that you're really good of like breaking down information in a very palatable way for people. So do you want to talk about what was I don't know what was your intention behind? What can people take away from this?
1: I try to keep it simple. Um, I just really so strongly. I mean, I had this experience probably five years ago where I went to an Al-Anon meeting one night and it was in the middle of the opiate epidemic. And there was one woman there. And I remember thinking to myself, what the F, how is this possible? Like, I know there's tons of addicts and alcoholics and where I live in all the neighboring towns. And How is it that there's one person at this meeting when people are dying from the open? (laughs) And so I just felt so strongly that I had to get a message out there about people who know addicts and also that codependency is not just living with an addict or alcoholic. I mean, I really see it on a continuum. I, I see tons of parents This is a whole other book, but parents that are super codependent with their kids and controlling with their kids and can't tolerate, you know, their own experiences. I mean, I know moms that literally have to keep their kids so busy all the time because they can't be alone with them for a couple hours. Mm. I mean, it's a freaking epidemic. I mean, I could talk about that for hours. I mean, this whole staying busy because you can't tolerate being around kids. I mean, it's so parenting at your jobs. I mean, friendships. I mean, how many times have I heard people say, oh, I can't say that to my friend. They'll get mad at me. That's codependency. I mean, it's so subtle and it permeates everything and that's why i feel so strongly about it. so and i so
0: appreciate you having you. me that, i am going to i will send you that that little last part that is was fucking powerful and we need to promote that shit. just that that last <laughs> part. what you just said was was very very good. Um, where can people find you? how do do you want to be found?
1: Just right now, I just have a website up. I literally am just in the process of transitioning and getting onto social media. I've had a practice for 30 years that I'm finally kind of winding down. And so I'm going to be more into kind of getting out there with this information, whatever that looks like, whatever the universe thinks I should be doing. I'm up for it. So, um, yeah drsaramisha.com right now and it has an email if you want to contact me or send me a note or you have comments about the book definitely let me know and yeah this is your first podcast and you're, you're a fucking pro so oh you're so great thank you so much anything I can do to be helpful
0: go away then damn you go on and do as you please but you ain't gonna see me getting down on my a- Well that wraps up today's episode as always you are so damn welcome y'all thanks again to Sarah go buy her book uh, go on Amazon cuz instead of going on her uh, her website and ordering it directly from her cuz i think that her stock she's out of stock with her stock so go and buy her book and i will keep you posted on workshops with her, um, for any of the virtual events that I do. Um, if there is a, if I have it capacity limited, you know, Patreon folks will get the first stab at it. Um, and then I'll go to everyone else. And also Patreon members will get a discount for any virtual event that I have. So go join the damn Patreon right now. Um, so next week, so tomorrow I am interviewing this guy who I heard him on Lex Friedman's podcast. And so he is, uh, has, was deemed the title, the, the godfather of cybercrime. Uh, this guy was, um, I think he ran a, like a cyber uh, crime ring. Uh, he was eventually arrested. He escaped prison. And then I guess got went back to prison Um, and now he's out and he helps the government with, you know, helping them with cybercrime related stuff. So I heard him on this podcast and his childhood was real damn fucked up. And I could tell by the way that he was describing it and kind of the lingo that he was using. He definitely has uh, an understanding of the impact that, that that had on him. So I reached out to him and he said, yes, so I'm talking to him tomorrow. Really excited for that. Um, and that is all, y'all. Please hit me up, Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com or send me a DM. Um, there's a bunch of people that I need to get back to. I promise I'll get back to you. And that be all. You guys spoke. We're still going to do this damn thing at the end. You know, I, I heard you guys. Uh, I, I value people. If you, again, I've said this before, but if you are still listening right now, okay, if you are still listening and you have not joined the Patreon That is not okay. That's not okay. So let's go uh, join the damn Patreon. Unless, of course, you literally cannot spare $5 a month. Uh, But that be all. I'm going to be seeing you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to
1: hear it. It's going to be on to just let it all go, go. what's making you small now